Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the rest of this politics question time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. Well, here we go. I want to start with Alejandro Dominguez. What do you think of Trump's interview on Univision, which is a very, very major uh, Latino television station in the US? How will Trump's portrayal affect the Latino vote, Alistair? Well, the reason I suspect why Alejandro Dominguez is asking this question is because Trump did this huge interview on Univision and... I don't know how to describe it. I think it's fair to say he was given a reasonably easy ride, which suggests that the new ownership of this station is on the turn. Who weirdly are close to Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Kushner. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there's obviously sort of, you know, I mean, Trump is a bit like all these sort of right-wing populists, same as Farage, utterly obsessed with media, utterly obsessed about sort of using media to... To, to profile themselves and project themselves. And of course, this is the channel that Trump had objected to their previous star interviewer, interviewer Jorge Ramos, because he was absolutely gunning for him over the whole build a wall stuff. So it seems like they're and, on and, the move. And, and Trump's racism. I mean, Trump's, you know, basically absolutely. implied that Mexican immigrants are terrorists or gun-toting people. So it's extraordinary that Latino vote may be shifting towards him. There also seems to be evidence that the African-American vote mm. is shifting slightly towards Trump. And Reid Hoffman, who we interviewed on Leading, the founder of LinkedIn, was saying to me over the weekend that this is the only thing he's really worrying about over the next year is how to do what he can to make sure Trump doesn't become president of the United States. He says at the moment, he feels like they're playing Russian roulette with three bullets out of six in the chamber. And his hope is to get it down to one bullet out of six in the chamber. He says you still wouldn't want to play Russian roulette. With oh, one bullet uh, explain, the, explain the Russian roulette. So his idea is the most a 50-50 chance of Trump becoming president, which is basically like shooting yourself in the head. And he right. wants to reduce the chance down to one in six from 50%. How do you do that? Partly where where by, is he on the sort of Biden to run, Biden not to run? Well, he, he thinks at the moment there's, there's no way out that so long as Biden wants to run, there's nothing that can be done. I mean, people made a real concerted effort back in the, the fall to try to persuade Biden to step down. He's not prepared to do that. The polling does suggest at the moment that Biden is less popular than another Democratic candidate would be. Although, of course, polling's a bit unreliable at this stage because mm. you don't know what would happen. New candidate came in. But one of the relevances of this is that a lot of it will come down to whether stations like Univision start putting out pro-Trump propaganda will make a huge difference. And it's not just Fox News. It's all these other right-wing media stations mm. will be critical for this vote, and then mm. social media and AI. One of the things that the, the Democrats and other liberal Latinos really objected to is, for example, in this interview, Trump constantly claiming that the election was stolen and so forth, and there was no pushback at all. Now, the defense of the station was, well, you know, that stuff's been kind of under death and what have you, but it was definitely, it was perceived as a big shift by a me major media player it's, it's in the Latino. Just some because we do think about this a bit, don't we, when we interview people, you know, whether we're interviewing Tony Blair, how much time we spend talking about the Iraq war, or doubtless when we interview Quasi Quarteng, how much time we spend talking about his Omni Shambles budget. Mm. How do you as a journalist get the balance right between having a open interview where you get the person to talk about themselves and also landing the points in you. Because it can be very mechanical, can't it? When you watch some of the BBC interviews, sometimes it can be just, we feel we have to ask the following seven things to prove that yeah, we're... Yeah, and they become really, really boring. 
Um, I mean, maybe related to this is a question from John, Minister's Media Briefings. When a minister is sent to a TV show, radio broadcast, are they briefed on the phrases to use and how to dodge questions? I mean, I think Trump is a very, very difficult interviewee because he doesn't mind lying. He likes to create distractions. He has his own talking points that he relentlessly pushes. I suspect they will have made a judgment. I mean, it sounds to me like they made a judgment to go soft on him. They were pleased to have him on there. And they, they knew it would get written about and talked about and be seen as a big political event. And might, might they actually have agreed to go soft on him as part of the negotiation to get him on? Entirely possible. Entirely possible. Although I don't think Trump, I think Trump's one of those people who doesn't really care about the question. He just pushes back in, in whatever way he wants. But look, it's like when, when you and I talk to each other about Iraq. And I said to you before, I didn't think I was being asked anything I've not been asked before, but people listening did. Now, I think that's about the tone. If you'd have been the Today programme, if you'd have been Newsnight, even before I got there, I'd have been in a mode. Yeah. And it becomes boring very, very quickly. I think what people like about our interviews, by the way, in fact, somebody said this to me at an event I was at last night. They'd listened to the Angela Rayner interview. And they said, what I like about your interviews is there's enough of your presence in there, you and me, without it being overwhelming. You're genuinely interested in what the person has to say about their life. Whereas I think what happens with a lot of media interviews is basically the journalist is doing it for other journalists. Right. Am I going to impress other journalists by asking this really tough question? And, and often in this they're way? trying to get a line, aren't they? They're yeah. hoping to, they, they've, they've sort of, there's well, three or four lines. We don't really care about Three or four lines we're hoping for, yeah. Right, well, here we are. Thoughts on the developments of the civil war in Myanmar. Anti-hunter rebels appear to be gaining lots of grounds. How can a lasting peace be built with so many rebel factions, many splits on ethnic lines, or wanting independence? It can't. Yeah, I mean, so just to remind people, I mean, of all the horrors in the world at the moment, Myanmar is one of the least reported and most horrifying. So, quick reminder, military government for many decades, then Aung San Suu Kyi was the lady, came in in the sort of democratic revolution, disappointed many people because of her failure to condemn the genocide against the Rohingya, and was then toppled by a military coup and is now in prison. Since the military government took over, the country has collapsed into a horrible form of civil war. And Myanmar is defined by a Burmese heartland, ethnically Burmese heartland, and then a whole series of different minority groups around the fringes. So in addition to the Rohingya, Shan, Kachin, Karen, Chin, many of them along the Thai Chinese borders. So we're now in a situation in which drugs are involved. A lot of these groups grow opium poppies, warlords, Chinese money. China's very, very dominant in Myanmar. All of them now fighting the Burmese army, along with a very, very brave, genuine democratic liberal group of people with 3D printed weapons out trying to take on the military. I mean, it, it's horrifying. Mm. And I was very optimistic about Burma in 2014, as was the British government. And, you know, I remember seeing 2012, 2013, thinking how much potential that country has. Incredible natural resources, perfectly located, very educated, could have been like Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia, one of the great Asian success stories, instead of which it's stuck in horror. And as you say, falling right off the international radar because of the focus on the Middle East, just as Ukraine's falling off the radar. It could be a classic example for the UN to get involved, but for this one to be resolved, it needs China and the US to mm. speak, mm. because China's the dominant power there. Yeah. And of course, the US isn't prepared really to talk to China, nor vice versa, about this kind of issue. Yeah. Now, more 
not happily because the the content is is a problem but a, a happier subject tree equity score james from the woodland trust are you aware rory of the tree equity score just launched in the uk by the woodland trust american forest and the center for sustainable Healthcare, and the fact that the areas which need the benefits of trees most have them least. And it's an interesting, we should put it in the newsletter. It's a thing where you can you can go online and you basically can you can measure the density of trees and the benefit of trees in your area. I'm very lucky. I live in a, a, a very nice... Leafy area. Fairly leafy, Hampstead Heath on our doorstep. And so we've got a very good tree equity score. But it's you can see, this goes back to the sort of point about inequality. You go to the poorer areas in the country... And they are worse off for trees. Yeah. And trees are so good for everything, aren't they? They're great for biodiversity. An oak tree can have over a thousand species in it. Great for air quality. And of yeah. course, great for carbon capture and climate. So it can actually clean up the air pollution. So absolutely, we need to plant more trees. And I'm always struck when I go to Paris that they're much more inventive about getting trees into the streetscape. Mm. I noticed that City Khan is making moves in that direction, but we should be moving much, much, much Faster. They're also very good for my social media feed and my tree of the day. Tree of the day, famous tree of the day. Yeah. Now, yeah. IPP Centre says, Donna, what impact will Alex Chalk's suggested amendments have for those serving an IPP in the community and for those stuck in prison? So, IPPs, just to remind people, these are sentences which were introduced by David Blunkett in the Labour government, where effectively for a minor crime, you can be detained indefinitely. And then when you're released from prison, you can be put on a license period of 10 years. And if you commit any offence during that 10 years, you can be brought back to prison. So for many prisoners, it seems like an interminable life sentence where they may have done something quite minor and they're just stuck in the system forever. They have very high degree rates of suicide, people dying in prison. And it's fundamentally inhuman and completely in contravention with the way that the law should work. You should be sent to prison for a set sentence defined by a judge, not just locked up indefinitely. David um, Blunkett had an interview in, I think it was in the House magazine. And he basically has said that this policy has been a disaster. And that the problem is that the, the judges used it, he says, in a way that was never intended. They were thinking this was going to apply to a small number of people. And it's turned out to have been applied to, to thousands. And as you say, thousands of people often ending up with instances of really serious self-harm and, and suicide. And although it was abolished by David Cameron in 2010... We're still dealing with the overhang. 13 years onwards, we still have an enormous number of these people within the system. And it would be a lovely thing to see in a Labour manifesto when they come in as the next government to see them actually clear the sentences for all those people. Yeah. Now, you confidently predicted... Not long ago, I seem to remember in this very studio that a certain N. Farage was going to be crowned the king of the jungle. That's right. Merian Boyle wants to know, is the fact that Nigel Farage is in the final of a programme like I'm a Celebrity a sign that the Tory right might still be a lot more popular than we think with Middle England? Now, first of all, would you like to apologise for like your to false apolo prediction? apologise to listeners. And in fact, it was very striking. There was I saying he's definitely going to win. And, and our production... And what did I say? Well, you, you said no. And our production team, who really understands this stuff inside out, was like, no way. There's no way. And they had some very complicated explanation of why Farage couldn't possibly win. Although I saw that GB News had a, a thing on there when I was channel. I never stay longer than a second when I'm channel hopping. But 
they had a thing in the corner. You had to put your phone against it. You could get five free votes to vote for Farage. Five free votes? They were, I don't know how it worked. but they were, So they were trying to rig the vote for what? Farage. That's rubbish. So Farage came third. Yeah. And I noticed that some of the newspapers were running. I think it was The Sun ran a huge front page with a picture of Farage, mentioning in smaller type that actually he hadn't won. But the front page basically gave the impression that he'd won the whole thing. We also saw his, his, the lady in his life. The lady in his she life. She flew out there to, to greet him. And he flew straight back to do a really tough, rigorous interview with Richard Tice on Talk TV. So the leader of the Reform Party interviews Farage about how terrible the government are on immigration. So I don't know that he's... I think he's less popular. I mean, the, the truth is that ITV are putting this down as one and a half million pounds that wasn't a very good investment. Oh, he didn't didn't get the, the viewers? Well, they lost four million. Oh, gosh. And is it basically that, apart from Farage, these shows are beginning to tank, that people are watching them less and less? Oh, God, I hope so. I really hope so. But um, I don't know. But they, they, apparently Ant and Deck have decided that there should be no politicians in future. So I'm afraid, Rory, you won't be going on I'm a Celebrity next year. I'm getting the most extraordinary number of offers for the most bizarre shows at the moment. And it's only my respect for you that stops me going on these various well, things. Rory, just put this in your head now. If the choice is between money and reputation, go for reputation go for every reputation. time. Well, that was not the choice uh, made by the people discussed by Nora Smith's question. Can you explain what's going on with the European Parliament's investigation into the Qatar Gate scandal? So given the choice between money and reputation, <laughs> so in Qatar Gate, there's been an extraordinary range of figures, including... Antonio Panzeri, former member of the European Parliament, a woman called Ava Cayley, who's a sitting member of the European Parliament, all bribed in order to influence voting at the European Parliament in favour of Qatar. And I think they've been arrested, allegations ongoing. We probably have to be careful uh, making you know, legal statements on this, but it is a mesmerising case. Mm. It appears that Antonio Panzeri took 2 million euros in bribes from Qatar and Morocco in order to get a friendly resolution towards Qatar and Morocco in the European Parliament. Extraordinary that they think it's worth 2 million euros to get a friendly resolution towards them in the European Parliament from one person. Was it to organise the resolution? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they got. It can't just be to sign something, was it? it? I mean, that's... <laughs> and Eva Cayley, her father was found with 750,000 euros in cash in a briefcase and was arrested. But she's claiming that as a European member of parliament, she should have been immune from arrest. She's challenging the legal process. How did the money get to the, to the father? So the, the claim is that her partner was somehow working with Antonio Panzeri, who clearly was corrupt. She panicked and was trying to get the cash out of their flat and that she wasn't herself proposing to benefit from the cash. But there is an extraordinary number of wiretaps. The Belgian police have been all over it. And a lot of these wiretaps have been shared with journalists, and the story is just going to keep developing. We've talked about this before, haven't we? This has been rumbling for months. We have mentioned it before, but I do think it's worth remembering, because yeah. when we talk about threats to democracy, it's this sort of cash in people's flats. The third person also, I think, had €250,000 in cash in the son's flat. Then it turns out that the son, who had €250,000 in his flat, was a business partner of the judge who was investigating the case. So oh, my God. And this is in the European Union. I know there's somebody who writes to me every single week on the back of our podcast and picks something in our in our podcast that says, do you still want to rejoin the European Union after <laughs> this then? Now, what about this one? Laura Rutherford, is it time for a total rethink, rebuild of Ofsted? 
and how would you do it? Now, I'm imagining this is because of the awful conduct in the case of the head teacher who ended up taking her own life in the middle of a, an Ofsted inspection. Now, I think in general, inspection of schools, good thing. I think the culture of Ofsted has got a little bit out of control. You just hear from too many teachers and head teachers who are under massive stress anyway because of cuts and all the rest of it, but who find that the Ofsted experience has become utterly horrific. Now, how you get that balance right, I don't know. But I thought that the response of Ofsted saying that they're going to get the inspectors in for a day's training on the back of this didn't feel to me adequate in the face of what the, the coroner's yeah. findings were pretty awful. It is, it is awful. I think a lot about this because in prisons, I was trying to get the prison inspectors to be more modelled on Ofsted, by which I mean getting the Department of Justice, Ministry of Justice, to take the inspection scores as a way of measuring themselves. And I did think that, certainly in Cumbria, they were unbelievably stressful. When people got a, a negative report, they often felt it was deeply unfair. But it was also very important for parents to be able to have some kind of sense of an independent person coming in and looking at how school was performing. And often if you read the reports in detail, both for, for education and for prisons, they were really helpful. And I do think in government in general, you need independent inspectors because mm. it's impossible, really. We don't have them for government, though, do we? We, we need them. <laughs> we don't well, have our MPs. National Audit Office. I suppose they yeah. do a bit. Yeah. And, and one of the sad things is often they do these. The National Audit Office has just done another astonishing account of the Ministry of Defence, which yet again is kind of billions of pounds over budget and crazy bad procurement. And it's about taking the time to follow up on those mm. stories because they do so much legwork. Guy Verhofstadt was interesting on the way to save money on defence, wasn't he? Yeah, very interesting on that. I think people will enjoy Guy Verhofstadt. That's my third plug of him so far this week. Okay, Alistair, loads more questions. Quick break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Ben, does criticism from the public get to you? If not, did it once? How do you deal with it? Now, be serious about this. There presumably was a time when criticism the public did bother you. I know that you're now more robust about these things. I think I've always been quite robust. Come on, how was it during the Iraq stuff? That must have been pretty horrible. Yeah, it was horrible, but it wasn't horrible because of the criticism. It was horrible because of what was happening. Right. I don't think it does get to me. Maybe it should more than it does, but I don't think it does. And when you go on Twitter and people just say more criminal, honestly, it doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother it me. really doesn't bother me. I've never ever blocked anybody on Twitter. I think I've blocked one person on Twitter, but I haven't for many it? years. Who was it? A far right guy in my constituency who was making some pretty terrifying okay. kind of nationalist threats. I could be wrong about this, but I always think if somebody's threatening to kill you, the last place they're going to threaten is on social media because <laughs> the police have got a pretty good place to start looking for a suspect. Now, I sometimes. I don't think it does get to me. I had a big row the other day with, with one of our kids and about politics. And, you know, when he says things to me, that gets to me. Right. 
if Fiona and I have an argument, that politics, that yeah. gets to me. But a random stranger doesn't get to you. No, not really. And I guess the other thing that we, you, I know you're finding weird because you told me is this at the moment through because of the podcast, people constantly stopping me and saying nice things. I don't feel any different about it than I did when people were more likely to say something unpleasant. It only gets to me if I feel physically threatened. Yeah. I, I, mean, I was, I, I was bit, standing outside a shopping mall with my kids uh, last week and a Frenchman came up to me in the street and said, basically, your country is shit. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're a terrible politician. Everything about this country is shit. And, and, and I, I got really angry. He said, oh, Monsieur le Président. <laughs> I spent 15 minutes shouting at this man uh, and him shouting at me. Were you shouting at him? Yeah, yeah, because I got really angry. And I kept saying to him, you know, how would it feel if I went to your country, went up to you randomly in the street and said, your country's shit? <laughs> said, well, my country's not shit. He said, your country's shit. Oh, my shit. God. Is he, does he live here? Uh, yeah, he lives here. He works here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. And, and I, so I said, why are you here? As you can imagine. And he said, just to make money. And then I'm going back to France. Oh, was he a banker? Was he a banker? It was awful. Bankers. Anyway, I didn't like that. Question for you. John McIntyre, if the Tories remove Sunak, would it enhance or diminish their electoral hopes next year? I think it would finish them. I think it would be... Because you know there are people on the Tory right oh, who are now fantasising about bringing in a sort of Boris Farage oh, combination. Well, I know, I know. It's just, I mean, I think what's happening with the Conservative Party, I felt this um, on the main podcast talking about, you know, the Star Chamber, Marc Francois has spoken. I don't think they have any sense of how ridiculous they look at the moment. I just think that Sunak looks to me like somebody who's floundering in the politics of all this. I don't think he quite well, because, knows how to deal with it. the politics of all this is mad. I mean, if we, if we just go back to this Rwanda thing, this was a, as the Home Secretary said, I think James Coverley said, a batshit idea of Boris Johnson's in 2022, spring of 2022. Which he now expects us to believe he thinks is a fantastic idea and the government send, can't send survive without it. Yeah. And it's a classic example of a lot of the way that Boris Johnson did politics, which is that he didn't bother to work out whether it was credible, whether it would get through the courts, whether you'd actually be able to send people to Rwanda before essentially signing a big check and saying he was going to do it. It then became sort of totemic, didn't it, for the right of the Conservative Party. So one of the reasons why along with four much more mainstream pledges on inflation and growth he put in Stop the Boats, is presumably to placate the right of the party. Totally. Right? And as we can see, they continue to judge him on almost nothing else. Absolutely. It's the only thing that they care about. Yeah. I think the two things he's got left, one is it would be absurd for them to try to get another prime minister before without a general election. I don't... I mean, look, we've had, since 2010, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson... Don't forget Liz Truss. Liz Truss. Yeah. And, and ran it. So we've had five prime ministers. We've now got more former prime ministers than at any time in our history. We're looking pretty ridiculous on the world stage. Sunak's not really cutting it, either domestically or globally, I don't think. Better than Johnson, better than Trust, but, you know, that's such a low bar. And who would they, who would they replace him with? Because well, the problems well, are the, well, the, the idea being sold by Stephen Glover in the Daily Mail, which, of course, they're beginning to flow to all of them. Is, Do you read the Daily Mail? I did on Monday to prepare for this podcast. Did I you? thought it was a very important thing to do. Oh, wow. I also well, looked how at, come I managed to prepare this podcast looked, without also, ever reading the Daily Mail? Why is at the mirror? Incidentally, there is no news in the mirror. It's absolutely extraordinary. No. There's like three news stories. The rest of it was celebrity stuff. I, I, was sort of, I mean, I, I haven't looked at them recently. They splash regularly on politics. The Sun had more political news than the mirror. And the Mail obviously has far, far more. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the mirrors seem pretty skinny to the me. The Daily Star had the best front page coverage of Johnson's COVID. 
evidence. What do they say? It was an old cliche, but it was the it was the longest nose you've ever seen. And it just said, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's quite clever. So apart from defending the mirror, so in, in what they were saying in the mail, or what Glover was saying in the mail is, and they're beginning to push, is this idea that Boris Johnson may have flaws, but he's an unbelievable campaigner and he's their one hope of... <sighs> Honestly, they're so deluded. They're so deluded. The public has seen right through that guy. Look, you've been at these events. We've done these events where you ask people their view, it's, it, I, I'd say his ratings are pretty close to zero. And I think it's a really good sign and it's quite encouraging. I don't know we're often giving people gloomy news, but the fact that Britain has more than the US and a lot of European countries largely emerged from the complete madness of the sort of Corbyn, Boris Johnson era, it feels less populist actually. It feels as though Keir Starmer is going to be the next prime minister Rishi Sunak is more in the centre than the right of his party. In some ways, Britain feels less divided, less polarised, certainly in the US, but also a lot of European countries. Yeah, interesting. Related question, Samuel Murray, who will be the next leader of the Tory party? Well, there, there is the big existential fight. I believe, and people would say, obviously, I would believe, that the reason why the Tories are going to lose the next election is they went far too much to the crazy right. And that when we lose, we should learn that lesson and move back to the centre-left. So who would that be? It's a tough call because I, I'm maybe somebody like Jeremy Hunt. I don't know if he stayed around. Wow. Maybe James Cleverly. Mm -hmm. But I think the likelihood is they'll learn exactly the wrong lesson. And they will say, uh, we weren't right-wing enough. And they will, Boris Johnson will probably try again, Swallow Bravman will but, try, but, but Johnson, 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 will can't, try. Johnson can't enter Parliament. He's banned from Parliament. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> That's a bit of a problem, <laughs> is it? A bit of a problem. And, and are you revising your scoffing of when I said that Farage will go for it at some point? Well, it certainly feels as though some people are interested in that. And I think that will be the real sign that the Conservative Party is finished. By the time Nigel Farage is in the Conservative Party, any shreds of the party that I joined in 2010 under David Cameron will have gone completely. Mm. Now, childhood books is my final question. Mm -hmm. Vicky Ellums, you both obviously love reading. What books do you remember from your childhood that inspired you? Am I allowed to say The Bruins and Orwelly? The Bruins and Orwelly, that's very good. <laughs> I, I did look forward to them arriving every Christmas. Gosh, did you read Roy of the Rovers? Yes, I did. Do you like I did. Roy of the Rovers? I did. I did quite like those sort of... Um, Cartoony books. I remember Roy of the Rovers. Yeah. I do remember. No, but I, what was his what was the name of the team? I can't remember. I think it's Melchester. It? Okay. Yeah. It's good, good skills. Well, I loved it. Yeah, let me give it a stab. I loved some sort of medieval books. So I loved Ivanhoe. I loved a book called Bowman of Cressy. A lot of the books that I really loved and films I loved, I think now when I look back at them, are not really very suitable. Violent. Well, I think there's actually some pretty odd views about race and stereotypes. For example, oh. I really liked a film called Those Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, Great but film. watch it. Watch it now. Did you the, read their all that impression, sort of, impression of the French and the Italians? It's a little stereotypical. To put did it you read way. the Just William books? Uh, I didn't do Just William. You like Just William? I like Just William. And what about Jennings? Did you read Jennings? No. Jennings was a um, private school was it? thing. Yeah, I read, maybe that's where I read, my antipathy to private so it came, education came from. Started. Jennings might have done. Um, I read Molesworth. Yeah. You remember Molesworth? So, yeah. yeah. Molesworth was like a comical private school guy, wasn't it? There was some posh bloke who had amazing conkers that he 
cooked in his castle oven. I do remember Lord of the Flies having a big impact on me. I was quite young when I read that. It's a chilling book, isn't it? But it's a tough book too. I remember William Golding saying that he was finished as a writer once it became a school set text, but it's a terrifying book. I mean, my my nine-year-old's been looking at it and just is is very frightened by the idea of what kids can do. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book by C.S. Lewis called Mm. Mere Christianity. I am reading Dominion by Tom Holland. Uh, Very good. Because he told me to read it in advance of us talking to him. Our Christmas podcast. We're going to do a Christmas podcast. And finally on this one, I I had a lovely conversation with the grandson of Uthant, Uthant, who was the UN Secretary General. Mm -hmm. This amazing figure in the 1960s, friend of Kennedy, friend of LBJ, vital in the early days trying to resolve the Vietnam War and actually ruined his career in the end in the 67 war. It's a sort of precursor of what we're seeing now. The UN was considered not to have taken the right position against the Egyptians in the 67 invasion. But he was saying that when he was interviewed by, Uthant was interviewed by Alistair Cook, the great BBC American correspondent, all they talked about was children's books. And Alistair Cook said, all you needed to understand about this Burmese man who'd lived in a village until he was 42 as a small school teacher is he'd had a completely Edwardian British childhood and all he wanted to talk about were, were sort of G.A. Henty books and all these kind of books that people read in late Victorian, early Edwardian England. Bit ahead of the Albert Hall on Thursday, I have the onerous duty and privilege of doing the eulogy at Glenys Kinnock's funeral. And one of the observations I make about her is that when our three children were born, she didn't bring clothes. She brought books, lots of books, for babies up to five. So she brought a whole library. Oh, that's of, amazing. Yeah. My friend Robert Craig from Cumbria, he's a Cumbrian dairy farmer. He and his wife Jackie, when when our kids were born, brought some amazing books, none of which I'd actually seen before, which were the most lovely things. I think they introduced me to the Gruffalo. They also introduced me for the first time to Harry McClary. Harry McClary. And all the dogs in Harry McClary's team, which includes Hector Morse, as big as a horse. Oh, I used to, when the kids were growing up, I liked Shirley Hughes. Baba, like Baba. Baba's brilliant. Baba's brilliant. Okay, I think we're done, Rory. Thank you very much. See you next week. See you soon.